O delight of Israel, there is none like you in heaven or earth. You are full of all your attributes, and you never change. You are worthy of our every attention. There is no thought, day or night, that should not be yours. When we think on your steadfast love, we find that it's better than life. When we dwell on Christ's person and work, our souls are satisfied as with fat and rich food, and our mouths will praise you with joyful lips. Our souls cling to you. Your righteous right hand upholds us. Give grace that we might fix him in our minds again, rejoicing in all that he has done for us. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Um, in light of last week's sermon, it's good for you to know that it's a privilege. I count it a privilege always to stand in the pulpit in front of you. And I know you love us well as elders, and so one of the ways you can help us carry the heavy load of doing this work is to pray for us. And so I would ask that even now as um, I'm bumbling and stumbling and making my way for the sermon, that you would pray that the Lord would use my limitedness for his glory. Well, we're back in the the book of Philippians. It's been a while. And uh, we're nearing the end of the second major section. There's really three sections in Philippians, two big ones and then a a small one, an exit here. And, And we know that because he's declaring here in verse 8, finally, we're kind of turning the corner towards the end of the section and then very quickly the end of the letter. Now, Paul has been commending the saints. He's encouraging them. He's giving thanks for their ongoing love and their unity, even amidst really difficult hardships. Paul says in his own sufferings and in his own imprisonments, they've joined him. So we know that they are going through both bodily and spiritual uh, temptations and trials, fiery trials even. And so Paul's been encouraging them over and over and over again to, to greater unity in love in spite of that. Now, it's really difficult when life is hard to lean in, to keep giving ourselves. And so Paul gives three precious gifts for them in this last section to help them make it all the way. The first, which is what we looked at um, several months ago now, uh, is in chapter 4. When the Lord, he says through the Apostle Paul, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he gives us prayer. Prayer is is, is a means by which we get through these fiery trials that we continue to have love and unity for God and for each other. This morning, we'll look at meditation. And then, Lord willing, in a couple months, when we finish out the book of Philippians, we'll look at contentment. This morning, I want to look at our passage, these two verses, in three points. And I, I chose, uh, in light of what uh, uh, Shane did last week, I thought it would be so helpful again, single words for the children, but questions for the adults. So, the kids, you might even get a good giggle out of this. We'll see. Point number one is to chew. Chew. And really, that is, that's what is meditation from verse 8. What is meditation? There's so much confusion. We need to understand what God is calling us to. So chew like you would chew food, children. Second is to do, D-O, do. Or what is the purpose of meditation? That's going to be from the first half of verse 9. So you have chew, that's the what is meditation. The do, what is the purpose of meditation. And then finally, the view, V-I-E-W. What is the result of meditation? And those are the last precious words of verse 9. So let's look at point number one, to chew. What, what is meditation? Now, I think most of us would say that as we look at the text this morning, uh, that it's, it's fairly straightforward, and, and you might walk away with a good understanding just reading it on its face. Clearly, the Lord has a stake in our thought life, and he's told us specifically what to think of, and he's given us a long list, and so let's just march on forward. The the problem is that we live in an age of confusion, where even simple words, straightforward words, are so often misunderstood. What does it mean for something to be true? Uh, Today, truth is, is a word that's thrown around, and nobody seems to know what true is. There's no true truth. What about justice? What makes something lovely? I don't know if you've walked in an art museum. I do not find modern art lovely. 
But some people do. What, what are these words? Because God is, not, God is not just putting any meaning in them. He has a specific purpose in them. And so we want to understand them. There's also greatly conflicting ideas in our culture of what it means to think on or to dwell or to ponder on something. Eastern influence has brought so much into our culture where people think they're not spiritual but are quite spiritual. And their ideas of meditation are all over the place. So we need to define what meditation is. But before I do that, I think before we get a working definition, I want to do something else. I want to show from the scriptures, this is, this is what I really want to impress at the very beginning here, is that meditation is a calling from God. Because if you're certain, if you and I are certain that God wants this for us, and that it's actually for our good, you are more apt to want to understand what God is calling us to. You're more apt to want to practice what God is giving us. And so I want to put before us um, a very clear picture that God has always, from the beginning, called his people to be a people of meditation. I think we can do that by looking at two key texts, both from the Old Testament, The first we read this morning uh, was the Old Testament reading from Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, we see, uh, as Smitty so rightly pointed out, a change in government. Moses has died. Joshua is on the scene. And um, Joshua is, is trying to replace the man who is the most humble man ever. Remember, that's what the Bible speaks of Moses. He was the most humble man. And here comes Joshua with a big task on his shoulders. And all he knows is that God is calling them to cross a river, the River Jordan, and enter into a promised land. He has no idea the trials that are before him. He can't imagine the ways that God is going to have to deliver them and provide for them. And so when we get to Joshua chapter 1 and God is having this one-on-one conference with Joshua, you'd expect, right, if this was was what most of us would want from God, we would expect the Lord to come down from heaven with a blueprint for Joshua. Here's how you build a bridge to get across the Jordan. And here's a battle plan, Joshua. Here's exactly how you can sack Jericho. But, But that's not what God gives to Joshua. No, look at Joshua 1, 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then what will happen? What will happen? You will have good success wherever you go. Them entering into the promised land was not dependent on whether or not Joshua was a capable military leader or an inspiring voice Instead, God gave Joshua a sufficient practice to lead God's people, to be faithful to the Lord, and to make it all the way home, to make it all the way to the promised land. And that practice was meditation. Now, you read that, and some of us in our own hearts would object. Clearly, this was just for Joshua. This is God speaking to Joshua. Or or maybe this is limited to leaders over God's people. Well, if you were to churn there, I don't want you to. To the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5, you would read something, I think, that would uh, maybe inspire you to think differently. Here's what the verse says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, God, he, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, where does that... That statement, I will never leave you or forsake you, come from? Well, there's only one place in the Bible that's a direct quotation from. Joshua 1, verse 5. Right there. This is, this is God's word for Joshua being brought forward by the author of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, speaking to his people. And he wants to be very, very clear that what God said to Joshua is the very thing that they need to hear. So I have a question for you. Are are we allowed to covet? Are we allowed to have a love of money? If not, if the the encouragement is that God will never leave us or forsake us so we can be contented in him, and that's what God said to Joshua, then maybe when God says to Joshua not to let the word leave his mouth, but to be his meditation day and night, maybe that's for you and me as well. 
You see, if one portion of this text is for us, then all of it is for us. Psalm 1, one of the blessed psalms that um, you might already have memorized. It was one that I memorized young as a Christian. Psalm 1, verse 1 through 2, what, is it, what does the Holy Scripture read? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In Psalm 1, God draws a line between those who are willing to pursue sin at any cost and those whom know him and he has brought into his congregation. Later on, you see the congregation of the righteous, that he knows their way. You see, the internal difference between these two people is the heart. One loves the law and its Lord. The other loves his own way. But the external difference between these two groups of people is meditation. You see, brothers and sisters, Everyone is a meditator. Everyone is a meditator. Either you're meditating on what pleases the Lord or not. Meditation is happening in every human heart all the time. Even now, as you sit here listening to me. Now, if God's calling to a holy life to be to be a blessed man like this, to not walk in the way of sinners or sit in their seats or follow after them. If that has not changed, and we know it hasn't, for there is a holiness without which we will not see God, then neither has the commandment to meditate. Even more so, uh, if you know the Psalms very well, Psalm 1 and 2 are often called the gateway Psalms because they really help us understand all the Psalms. The entire Psalter could be summarized in Psalm 1 and 2. What do they tell us? They tell us there's a good life that we are to be about, that we are to seek. And they point us to the only way that we can have the good or the blessed or the happy life. What is that? It's through the blessed man. Now, you and I, brothers and sisters, we're not the blessed man. Can you really say that you've never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers? No, I can't either. But I know one who has who has never given himself to sin or temptation. No, he, God himself invites us to the blessed life by coming after him. Who? Jesus Christ himself, who was the preeminent meditator on the scriptures. And we'll see that more later. But Christ himself meditated to the point where his delight was always in God's law. And so now you and I are tasked, the Lord Jesus makes this clear, to come after him, to follow after him, which means that part of taking up our crosses every day is the forsaking of our own thoughts and being filled with meditations of his word. In short, here's, here's something so important. Meditation is one of the ways that we fulfill the third commandment. Baptist Catechism 59, what is the third commandment? Or what is required in the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment requires the holy and reverent use, use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. I'm going to show you, by God's grace, I hope, that meditation is obeying God's law. But as our creator and redeemer, God had every right just to give us the command to meditate and leave it at that. He could have done that. But our Savior is so tender-hearted, is he not? Instead, instead of just leaving us with a command and to sort it out and figure it out on our own, he does more by expounding all of its benefits to us. In fact, uh, like a miner in a cave uh, looking for precious gold, imagine all the hard work to get hundreds and thousands of feet underground, and then they see a vein of silver or gold. What a joy, what a delight. It makes them want to keep working. Well, God does the same thing to us. He shows us veins of precious silver and gold in his word to encourage us to work hard at meditation. From Joshua, for example, we see that meditation will keep us doing his word that we might have great success. Psalm 1 encourages us to meditate so that, we'll, so that um, we will have uh, strength and fruitfulness and prosper, prospering. 
It's an exercise that keeps us, in Psalm 1 it says, not blowing away like chaff. Psalm 119, which if you're joining us in the evening service, we're going through uh, regularly um, as we're praying the scriptures together. Psalm 119 is chock full of comforts found from meditation. Verse 6, when we meditate on his word, we're not put to shame. Verse 11, it leads to sanctification. Verse 16, it causes us to delight. Verse 24, there's wisdom found when we meditate. Verse 43, we find hope. You see, meditation, brothers and sisters, will make your Bible reading profitable. Richard Baxter, not my favorite Puritan, but I love this quote. Richard Baxter says this, As a hammer drives a nail to the head, so meditation drives a truth to the heart. You want your Bible reading in the mornings to mean something? You're going to need to meditate. Meditation draws out love from our heart. Thomas Manton. Those Christians that are backwards to the duty of meditation, or in other words, those who are opposed to it, don't want to engage in it, find none of those impulses and meltings of love that are in others. Affections always follow the rate of our thoughts if they are ponderous and serious. In other words, your heart's desires follow what you think after. Meditation can draw love out of your heart. Meditation will give fuel to your prayer, cause thanksgivings to rise and sin to fall. It will keep you rooted in distress, ward off anxieties and fears. If ever there was a medicine for every ill in the Christian life, it is this, biblical meditation. I want to, I want to rush and give you a definition. But, but before we, 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 we do that, I, I've put before you that, that it's a duty and it's a delightful duty. But there's one more thing we have to take into consideration before we just start opening up the box of meditation. It's this. There might be a duty. There might be a delight. But there's also a danger. A danger. Meditation is a command. A law. You might hear God's righteous command this morning, this this righteous requirement he has for you and for me, and you could be very well pierced to the heart. That's what the law does, does it not? I haven't even defined meditation yet. And I know some of us are squirming in our chairs knowing that we haven't done what God has required of us. Maybe never. Maybe we don't even know what I'm talking about, but we know we haven't done it. And so you dread, you dread the rest of this sermon. Others, others, we very enticed by the idea that meditation has all these benefits. That it's an avenue maybe to get right with God or... or get from God what one thinks is their right. Neither response honors the Lord. Neither response. We can't shrink back from His law, nor can we think of His holy commandments as meriting, earning, putting God in debt to us. The second word in our text this morning, the second word in our text, is the one that gives both comfort and efficacy to meditation. Here's that second word, if you're looking at it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Brothers. Brothers. You see, none but a Christian can truly or rightly meditate on the Word of God. And a Christian must meditate. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus that makes you and I, brothers and sisters, takes away the sting of the law and leaves only its delightful benefits. The gospel of the Lord Jesus humbles any attempt to turn this practice into pride. Without the blood of Jesus, meditation will be filthy rags that will condemn and never commend. Friend, if you don't come to the Lord in meditation covered by the blood of Christ, know that the Lord will require your blood of you. Turn from your sins. And come to Christ, that you may partake of all the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ that he offers through meditating on him. Brothers and sisters, you do not come to the Lord in meditation under guilt, but under his free mercy. Don't let your failings in the past keep you from current graces. Look to Christ afresh for all you need to start meditating on his word now. We've done with the duty. We've talked about the delight. I've warned you of the danger. 
What then is meditation? Let me be clear what meditation is not first. See what I'm doing? I'm kind of dragging you along with me, aren't I not? You just want me to define it. Let me tell you what it's not first. It's not the emptying of the mind. This is a very popular trend that our culture has inherited from Eastern religions. Emptiness or nothing does not bring calm or serenity or peace, no matter what someone tells you. No, it is the presence of the Lord Himself that does this, as He invites us to fill our mind with deep, comforting thoughts of Him. Of Him. Meditation is also not fixating our mind on a single object. Another very unbiblical practice asks the one meditating to think on or focus on a goal or a dream or a concept or a thing. It's a call to visualize the heart's own desires. The Bible makes clear that that's foolishness. And our heart is nothing but wayward. Instead, we're to draw all of our thoughts up to the Lord, who is the source of all that is good, that is true, that is beautiful. Finally, this call to meditation, it's not passive. Many think of meditation or even our thought life as something that can pass by. I don't know if you, that can just be passed by us. I don't know if you know this, but have you, have you ever thought about what the word amusement means? The word muse comes from Greek. It was these ideas of these um, semi-deital beings that caused artisans, artisans to, to be able to paint great pieces of art or, or uh, literaturists to write great pieces of literature. It made them think. When you put ah before a word in Greek, it cancels it out. It literally means to not think. Our culture is one of not thinking, but letting things just pass through our mind like water through a pipe. You know, our culture wants us just to take or leave whatever thoughts that come to us that make us feel good. Choosing to fix in some and just let others go by. But the Lord tells us that we are to be very active in our thought life. We are to protect our hearts. Why? For they are the wellsprings of our very life. We're called to confront or take captive thoughts that are in opposition to God while also growing our capacity as hard as it is to dwell on truth. So what is, what is meditation? I think Thomas Boston gives a very helpful illustration. Here's what he says. Meditation is the chewing upon the truths we have heard. The beasts in the Old Testament which did not chew the cud were unclean. The professor who does not meditate does not by meditation chew the cud is also to be counted unclean. And you know, many of us didn't grow up on farms. I grew up near a farm. I hope that counts for something. But many of us didn't grow up on farm, and, and I didn't. I know most of us have not spent much time around sheep. But animals like sheep can't get their nutrition simply by chewing on grass. And you and I eat and swallow, and it goes into our stomachs, and we, are, we grow. But, but that's not how it works for sheep. No, instead, they have to take in and chew and chew and chew and then swallow. And this is going to sound disgusting, but they regurgitate it to chew it again and then swallow it again. You see, in order for them to get the nutrients they need, they have to take this long process of, of breaking down and bringing into their body. Meditation is much the same for us. And so here's how we're going to start to define it. Meditation is the blessed duty of warming our hearts to God through intentional thinking on His Word. Meditation is the blessed duty of warming our hearts to God through intentional thinking on His Word. As we've already seen, God's commandments to meditate are accompanied by many promises. That's the reason why it's a blessed or a happy, happy duty. But the goal, the thing that we're targeting in meditation is the heart. And that's what separates it from every other practice. Let me show you. Meditation differs from memorization. Many of our children are memorizing Psalm 19. I'm thankful for it. But, but memory is storing something up in the mind. Meditation takes it out 
into the heart. Memory is like having medicine in a cup, where meditation is like drinking down the medicine, that we might be well. Memory stores a fact. Meditation makes it part of life. Thomas Thomas Manton again. What comfort can it be to a man when he comes to die to think he remembered many excellent notions about Christ? When you're on your deathbed, it will do you no good to go, you know what, I can remember lots about Jesus. No, instead, this is what he says. But never had the grace so to meditate on him as to be transformed into his likeness. See, meditation is what we need. Meditation takes of what we know and what we've memorized and actually applies it to our lives so that God is very near, very real, very precious to us. Meditation is not studying the Bible either. There is a difference. Study works to help find out a truth. Meditation takes that truth and applies it to our heart and life. Study can leave a man with much knowledge. Much knowledge. But without meditation, it can only make him twice the son of Satan. Meditation draws the Lord of the Scriptures near. It reveals the condition of our hearts. It applies the balm of the gospel to our wounds and encourages us to walk in new ways. It's not simply an intellectual exercise. It's much more than that. It's a spiritual one. Let's good and well. We were driving to church last week. I was having a similar conversation with my children about what it means to meditate. Titus, I bet you guys can imagine this, Titus is in the back seat shouting to me because I can't hear him. And he's asking an important question. He says, but how does meditation help? How does that help me? In a seven-year-old's way, you know what he's saying He's asking me to connect the definition of meditation with its benefits. He wants me to show him how meditation works so that he can get that same good. In other words, he's asking, how do I do this, Daddy? How do I meditate? Whole books have been written on how to meditate. It was one of the Puritans' favorite topics. And I can recommend one or two very small, helpful ones if you're interested. But what I really want to do is to give us some basic principles. Because here's the reality. All those books are, are wonderful and they're great. And many have different specifics in their practices, but they all share in common some very core principles. So here are some of those principles. Basic principles to start us off. And then I'm going to give you one particular way I think it's helpful to practice them. The first principle is this. You must prepare for meditation. Thomas Watson this time. Meditation is not a cursory work to have a few transient thoughts of religion like dogs that lap and then run away. But there must be in meditation a fixing of the heart upon the object, a steeping the thoughts. In other words, meditation is not just let's have um, some warm, cozy thoughts about Jesus while we sit around a fire and sing Kumbaya. Nor are we wanting to lose time by simply just letting thoughts kind of go through our mind and then leave us. No, this is a a serious work that takes effort. And so what we need to do if we want to meditate well is to get away with God. To intend to get away with God. The world's music will either play us asleep or distract us in our meditations. The world is out to keep you. Your heart is out to keep you from meditating. So we need to give undiverted time for the Lord to work on our hearts that we might meditate rightly. Find a quiet place where no one and no thing, no thing, will likely distract us from time with the Lord. And know that your heart, know know this, this is so important. Sometimes when we start to pray, we feel the same way. Our minds are all over the place. We think it's not working, I should just give up. Know that your heart's going to naturally resist meditation, especially at first. If there's something in front of you that your mind can grab hold of and lead you away, it's going to. Your heart's going to find a way to latch onto it. So don't let that be in a discouragement. Instead, let, it re- let that remind you of our need for the Lord's help 
and the blessing of taking heaven by force. Pray for the Lord to bless that time, to allow you to see wonderful things in his law, and that to use that time to delight you. So prepare. Get to a place and pray. Second, here's a second principle. Read the word or go through your sermon notes before you meditate. The passage this morning, uh, Philippians 4, 8, lists a lot of things there that we're told to think on. The word there is logizomai. It really means to account, to reckon, um, to go through fervently. There's a long list of things to do that to, to meditate on. Uh, Things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. If you go through that list, I have a question for you. Is there any of those things that the word of the Lord are not? In fact, the only way that we know what is good or true or lovely is because the word tells us what is just and right and beneficial. It tells us who is worthy to praise as well. The word points us to the one who exhibits all of those qualities, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the right object of our love and our faith. Remember Joshua? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on a day and night. What did it, before you meditated, what was it? The law had to be in Joshua's mouth first. So let the word be the substance of your meditation. God in Christ is what we're called to think on. You need the word. Principle three. Select something specific to meditate on. Perhaps the most daunting part of meditation is that guilt, I felt it, I'm sure you have too, the guilt of not knowing what to meditate on. What do I mean by that? If you're going through like a Bible through the year plan with the men, or maybe you're doing another Bible reading plan, you probably have multiple chapters in front of you, maybe even 100 verses. It would be really hard to meditate on 100 verses. That's, that's overwhelming. Or if you're, if, you're, if you're doing one of the things that I've commended over and over again, which is regularly to meditate on the sermon, that's an hour's worth of material. If you were to meditate on hours worth of material, it might take you all day, right? Instead, instead of that, here, here's what you should do. Um, this is a practice that I learned from Shane years ago. And this is the benefit. I I want to encourage Shane. This is the benefit of having the same pastor for years. Things that they say to you years ago bear fruit later. Maybe even in a sermon. (laughs) Right? So let me give you a practice that Shane gave me years ago. And and I've I've tried to give it to my children. and, And I want to give it to you. Select one or at most two verses of all that you read. Something that stuck out to you. Something that the Spirit is stirring you. You need to focus on. And then come prepared with pen and paper in hand. And you should start by just writing those verses out. And that's going to slow you down. So often, so often, our Bible reading is just, got to check that box. Got to run through it. The sermon is, yep, I heard it. Let me just get into my day. No, no, you need to slow down if you're going to meditate right. Writing those verses down will help you to think diligently about what God is actually saying. And then do this. Separate your paper into four sections. This is, you want to know how intentional Shane is, it's the same sections that are in your worship journal. So if you, if you don't get it now, it's in your worship journal. Ready? God. God. What does this passage tell us about God in general? Well, about his character or his nature? What, do you, what are you seeing that's true about him? And then, and then, this is why meditation is so beneficial. What specifically do you need to believe about God from that passage? What do you need to believe about God from that passage? The second section should be man. What does that passage tell you, tell me, about the condition of man? Our sinfulness and our foolishness in general. Like, what is the condition of all mankind? But even more so, what ways do you see sin in your own heart? What are the ways that you're tempted not to believe what is true about God? What's good about what he's calling us to? The next section is Christ. What does the passage have to tell us about our Savior? In fact, how does he meet you specifically in that sin and sorrow? 
How can you looking at Christ turn God's character into a delightful thing in light of and in spite of your sin? There's one more category. It's going to be the last point. So we're going to move along. But, but I want you to see these three categories are so helpful because they all are interlocking. They work together. As you meditate on God's character, how could you not look then in your own heart and see how desperately wicked you are that I am? And when you know how desperately wicked you are, when you feel the weight and gravity of your sin, how could you not want to cry out for a Savior to deliver you? And so Christ is there to meet you. No, brothers and sisters, sometimes when you come to the Scriptures, these these three categories are so helpful, they interlock. But don't be a slave to them in this sense. Sometimes you'll come across a passage, and one of these will just scream at you. You won't be able to figure out exactly what maybe it's saying about God or Christ, but you can see real clearly sin. Start there, and then work out the other categories from that. The Lord is gracious. He'll help you with that. The fourth principle the fourth principle is to pray. Is to pray. When you're done meditating, when you've done all of this, you need to pray. Seal up your meditation in the vault of your heart with prayer. Give thanks to God for what He has shown you. You didn't have that ingenuity. The Holy Spirit had to lead you in it. Ask for grace to hold on to what you've read all day long. You and I do not have the strength to go five minutes without forgetting what we just read. We need God's help. And then confess to the Lord your desire to obey Him exactly as He's prescribed in that passage. These four principles provide a solid ground to start meditating well. Two final practical things, because I know this comes up. And I just want to put it to rest so that you don't have to wonder all day about these two things and instead maybe you can start meditating. None of us would say that our lives are not busy. And so you're asking yourself, how long should I meditate? Right? When you wake up in the morning, you got to get going. The day's got to be had. I want to be very clear. God does not expect you to spend all day in meditation any more than he expects you to spend all day praying. In fact, he's given us vocations, calling, things that we're supposed to do that need our tending. God has given us those things to do. But here's a couple thoughts that I think will put um, the right frame around meditation. First, meditation is the proper application of Scripture. That means when you're doing your devotional times, if you want them to be profitable, you can't skip meditation. It's better to read less and meditate more then drink from a fire hose and still walk away thirsty. Our meditations are also what prepare us for the day's trials. I want you to imagine Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. They were very busy with daily needs. They had to cut wood to boil water, to make food, to be able to drink. They were a very, very busy people. And when they woke up every morning, do you know what they were? Very hungry. And they needed food. If they didn't eat, they would be weary throughout their day. And they would faint. Can you imagine doing your chores, children, in over 100 degree heat? All day in the sun. Tiring. Wearying. They needed food. So what did the Lord do? The Lord gave them manna every morning just before the sun was hot in the sky. And they were to gather up all of their need then. So meditation is taking in Christ the true heavenly bread, into our hearts that we might be sustained all day long. If you think about it that way, if you think about it that way, meditation is not something we need to fit into our day. It's something we build our day around. So then how does that impact how long we meditation? How, how does that impact how long we meditate? What's the answer to how long? If a man were walking in a blizzard and came upon a fire, how long would he linger there? Until he was warm. When we wake every morning, our hearts are cold and dry and weary. We need to linger in meditation until they're warmed and watered and rested on our Lord. When you can truly say you have a renewed sense of God's love for you in Christ and a renewed dedication to loving God and others, then you're meditated full. 
brothers and sisters, that means meditation is going to cost us. It may mean getting up very early. It may mean giving up plans on late nights and those pleasures we like before we go to bed. But let me promise you something. It will always be worthwhile. You will never be put to shame when you forsake the things of this world to meditate on Christ. The second thing that's probably coming to mind is when. When should I meditate? Just as we're called to set apart a time for purposeful prayer, yet also have occasional prayers throughout the day, so too we should set a time for purposeful or intentional meditation and then also meditate throughout the day as we have an occasion. I think mornings seem best for the time for intentional meditation for at least two reasons. First, the temptations of the day have not yet creeped in to harden our hearts. You and I know by the end of the day we are going to be weary and it's going to be difficult to get back into the Word. The fire of our soul might even still be warm from the prior day and not yet fully snuffed out. Mornings are wonderful to rekindle the fire of your heart. But it also tends to be the time where you're going to have the most quiet and be the most free of distractions. How often the good things God puts in our lives can draw our hearts away. Morning is a time to meditate. But don't forget, if you choose to meditate in the morning, to meditate throughout the day. Whenever, here's just examples, whenever you doubt or worry or despair, when you're confronted with some sudden or intense temptation, when you have some unexpected joy, or when you're alone or not engaged in some important task, the wandering mind is liable to run right into the thicket of entangling sins. Meditate when there is a special occasion, like a difficult providence or a milestone in your life or in others. In fact, I think when we meditate this way, when we're constantly having our thoughts caught on God and man and Christ and then response, which we'll see in a moment, brothers and sisters, we're so much more apt to walk the Christian life we want to walk. If you want proof of this, if you want to see instant or occasional meditation when things come into our life, read Psalm 77 this afternoon. Look through it. See if that man is not doing exactly what, I'm, what, what the Lord is calling you to and thinking about his circumstances, how hard it is, his anxieties and fears, and then looking to God and then even to Christ and finding all that he needs to then do what God calls him to. The second point. These are shorter, I promise. What is the purpose of meditation? Or do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. Meditation is not speculation. It's not trying to increase our knowledge. Our passage links meditation directly with application. The the things in the letter are the kinds of things that Paul wants us to meditate on. They're the things that the Philippian church have learned from Paul, received from Paul, heard from his lips, seen in his life. And that's what Paul is commending them to. What what makes meditation so helpful, so effectual, is that it takes the things of God and makes them your own. It makes them my own. So that the, the soul is fed, the ground is watered, and the seed gives forth fruit. See, Titus? This is how it helps. We grow more godly in meditation not by simply heaping up more knowledge. The devils are very knowledgeable of the things of the Lord. So are many people outside of Christ. No, here's the thing is, if meditation does not end in godly obedience, it would be much like chewing on food and swallowing and never getting healthier or never getting stronger. Thomas Watson again. Live out your meditation. Meditation and practice are like two sisters. They must go hand in hand. The end of meditation is action. Without this, we're like the Gnostics who had much knowledge, but were licentious in their life. They were full of sin. Meditation without practice will only increase a man's condemnation. Would a biblical example help? I think it would. Think of Jesus in his wilderness temptation. There he is, hungry and alone. And Satan comes to him. 
And we all know the story, right? Three times Satan tempts him, and and Jesus answers three times with Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not test your God, right? Right? Do you think that's just because Jesus had memorized the Scriptures? i use myself as an example to my own shame. There was a time years ago where I had whole books of the Bible memorized. Whole books. Do you think I remember them now? No. Because they were never my meditation. They were never my delight. I never carried them into my life. You see, Jesus was able to confront Satan in that moment not because he had simply memorized the word, but he had dwelled so long on it he was sure that his bread was the word of God. That he could never tempt or test his father. That's how he had victory. And Christ is not just our example in this. Brothers and sisters, remember the sermon from last Christmas. Christ did everything leaning on the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit He bought for you and me. You and I can meditate and meditate rightly because Christ's Spirit dwells in us. So we bend the bow, as Manton said, through meditation, and we let the arrow fly to its mark in application. And this happens, if you think of that sheet of paper again, in that last and final column when you meditate. This section should be called application or response. When I'm done with my meditations in the mornings, I try to write three things under response. And I try to commit myself to carry them throughout the day. I hope this will be helpful to you. I hope this will be encouraging to you. Here are the three things. First, a prayer confessing whatever sin is present and admitting that the grace I need is found only in God. See how that, that's God and man? The second is a specific promise or work of Christ that I can ask the Lord to use throughout my day. That's the third section. And then I write one thing, a specific conversation I need to have, a specific duty I need to do, or a specific sin that I need to put off for that day related to the prayer and to the promise. Now, this gives me three very small but specific ways that I can carry my meditation into obedience. And that may not seem like a very big deal. It might seem like a really great work. Brothers and sisters, godliness is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. Saint, you who have done very little, perhaps no meditation in your life, you who have found so very little application of the sermons in your heart, I hope this encourages you. The Lord does not ask you to be perfect. Does not ask you to come and be perfect in meditation. No, He has a perfect Son. He doesn't need another one. Instead, He asks you to grow in faithfulness. In faith and in obedience. These small little bricks, if you took three small little Legos every day and put them together, you know what you would turn into over years and years? A castle. Three little bricks of obedience can be turned into a temple of praise of your life dedicated to the Lord who's given himself for you. So what is meditation then? Meditation is the blessed duty of warming our hearts to God through intentional thinking on his word for obedience to Christ. For obedience to Christ. The last point. The last point then. The view. What is the result of meditation? Here's what we want our eyes to be put on. This is what we're looking to. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, I've already mentioned it at the start of our time. Meditation is not meritorious. Anyone who has saving faith in Christ knows peace with God. And the assurance, I hope you know the assurance. You're growing in your assurance. That God will accept you based on Christ's merit alone. Yet, there's also an experiential nearness of our God which can rise and fall. Or in other words, we have union with Christ based on Jesus' work. That can never move. But our communion with Christ can go up and down, be rich or poor, as we sin or obey. Baptist question 95. 
drawing this specifically to meditation. How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? Answer, <clears throat> that the word may be effectual, become effectual to salvation. That doesn't mean just to be saved, brothers and sisters. Salvation they have in mind is also sanctification and glorification, getting all the way to the end. In order that the word might be effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto, now listen, with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receiving it with faith and love, laying it up in our hearts, and practicing it in our lives. What does that sound like? Meditation. Article 17 from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's the chapter called The Perseverance of the Saints. Listen to what it says in paragraph 3. And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their perseverance or their preservation. Meditation. If you neglect meditation, what happens? You can fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur the wrath, they incur the displeasure and God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. Come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. In other words, there are many blessings that come from meditation. I listed many of them in our first point. But the greatest good for meditation is this, confidence that God himself is ours. Do you remember the wilderness temptation? How that was a fruit of Christ's meditation? Do you know how that, that section ends? Here's what the scripture says. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You see, the Lord delights to draw near to those who want to draw near to him. So here's your full definition of meditation. It's the blessed duty of warming our hearts to God through intentional thinking on his word for obedience to and love of Christ. Let us pray that we might meditate on God who is our Father, the Son who purchased us, and the Spirit who dwells within our hearts. May He and His Word be our greatest thought by day or by night, that we might bring forth good fruit for His pleasure and assurance for our weary soul. Brothers and sisters, meditation will be for eternity. I don't know if you know that or not. This morning we're coming to the table, and we're going to see with our eyes a sign of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. As you go to take the table, you're going to have the opportunity to meditate on his person and work. But one day, when you and I enter eternity, we won't stop meditating. In fact, we'll perfectly meditate as we look at his face forever and delight in him. And God's people said, Amen.